0: Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would speak to us now as we look into your word. Pray that your spirit would be at work in our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, I said that this would be our first week in Exodus. Uh, But when I sat down in my study on Tuesday and I opened to Exodus chapter 1, I was reminded of too many connections to Exodus to ignore, and so we have one more week in Genesis to cover chapters 15 through 50. Next week, we will be in Exodus. I sometimes think a careful reading of the Bible is actually more shocking for someone who learned about it in church as a kid. As a kid, I grew up in Sunday school and learned about all of the virtues and strengths of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it seemed that the underlying lesson was you should imitate these incredible men. And certainly Hebrews 11 holds their faith up as an example. But when you read Genesis, you discover a slightly different picture. Honestly, if God established His chosen people through strength, rather than choosing Isaac and Jacob, you would think He would have chosen Ishmael and Esau. Both of them in Genesis are incredibly strong, self-made men. But God does not choose people who are already good or already strong to do His work. The scripture says he chooses the weak. And last week, we saw God pledge his very life to bless Abraham and the entire world through Abraham. And we believe that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, gave his life on the cross to fulfill that promise of blessing to all people. But the thing is, it is easy to know God's promise even on this side of the cross and the resurrection, to see how God chose to fulfill it, and yet to still wrestle with unbelief. Especially when years pass and His promise does not seem to be coming true. God promised in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan would be crushed through one of Eve's descendants. God promised blessing for all people Through Abraham. There's the hope that the fellowship with God that was lost in Eden can be restored. But at the same time, in spite of those promises, in spite of the gift of the Holy Spirit and the church that spreads the gospel, the world is still a mess. If you turned on the news this morning, you found out that North Korea tested a hydrogen bomb last night. And our president says that negotiations and talks will no longer work. Now what that means, the coming days and weeks will tell. But we live in a world with crazy dictators who are trying to attain weapons that threaten the lives of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Or... Closer to home for for many of us. If you've placed your hope in Christ. You know. That all of us. One day. Will be made like him. We will be free from sin. We will walk. In perfect fellowship with the father. But at the same time. We continue to struggle with sins of selfishness. Sins of greed. Laziness. And lust. And we may long for perfection. But we don't have it right now. Many of us want to do what's right, know to do what's right, but still fail. So the question is, have God's promises failed? And my prayer is that in looking at Genesis for one more week, maybe with slightly more grown-up eyes for those of you who have read through Genesis or have learned about it in the past, looking at Genesis gives us a glimpse of God's faithfulness In the midst of pain. Last week, we saw the vividness of his promise, how he makes a sacrifice. God himself pledges his own life to fulfill his blessings to Abraham. And this week, we will see what it means to wait on that promise. That the promise didn't come right away, but it involved waiting. And it involved things that made it seem like it was not being fulfilled. To give an example before we look at specifics, part of God's promise to Abraham was that he would be fruitful and have a giant family. We mentioned last week, Abraham waited for 25 years before Sarah, his wife, had Isaac. Then Isaac, who inherits the promise from his dad, marries a girl, and they struggle to conceive for 20 years one of the tenderest verses in Genesis is Genesis twenty-five twenty-one. It says, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. If God says to both you and your dad, I will make you fruitful. And then you as Isaac have to wait 20 years before you're able to have kids. Do you think that that would give you great confidence in God's promise? Would you have solid faith or would you begin to wonder if maybe your dad was a little crazy? In fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all love women who don't seem to be able to conceive. And I think that that is actually one of the first clues we get that God is at work. The reality is the Bible says God chooses the weak things of this world. To shame the strong so that no one could boast before him. And what better to show God at work than promising a family and a nation to people who are childless. If they struggle to even have one child. It means that God has to work a miracle to keep his promise. And that isn't just true with the physical side of God's promise. This morning, I want to take a short look at Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And to show how God's promise purposefully led to Egypt before it led to the promised land. So last week, we looked at Genesis fifteen thirteen, And if you have your Bibles, we'll be slowly moving through the book starting in chapter 15 today. So I'd encourage you to open up to the very first book. Look at Genesis chapter 15. We're just going to read verse 13 right now. Genesis fifteen thirteen. Scripture says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And in verse 15 he says, As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. God tells him, the promise that I've made to you is not a promise that you will live to see fulfilled. And in fact, your descendants will suffer for 400 years before they see this brought to fruition. Today, we're going to look at the road to Egypt. The unlikely way that God chose to fulfill his promise that shows that he is at work. And his choice is not based on us being good or strong. But His choice Shows his incredible commitment to be faithful to his word and to work out his promises in his own power, in his own strength. So, to begin, we need to look at Isaac, who inherits his father's promise. So, skip forward with me about 11 chapters and go to chapter 26 with me. So, Isaac is the son of promise that's born to Abram and Sarah. And in chapter 26 of Genesis, He receives the same promise that his father received. You can read it in verses 3 through 5. God says, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land where I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Then in verse 24, God appeared to him again and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Isaac lives a long life without a place to call home. The first verse of 26 describes how there's a famine where they were moving around from in Canaan. And so in order to make the family survive, the natural choice was to go to Egypt that wasn't affected by the famine. But God says, don't do the thing that makes sense. Trust me, I will provide for you. God does provide for him and blesses him, but chapter 26 is really the only chapter in Genesis that focuses on Isaac and his life. And this chapter describes how he moves from place to place and has constant conflict with the people who rule the land that God has promised that he will possess. He never receives what God promised his dad or what God said that he would promise him. Instead of enjoying rest, he faces constant opposition. And as he nears his death, or as he thinks he does, he blesses his youngest son, Jacob. Now, Jacob is a natural-born used car salesman. He cheats his brother, his older brother, out of the blessing and birthright that by custom and tradition should have belonged to the oldest son. And if you read about these two men, you get the impression that Esau, his older brother, is a strong and a capable man. If you would think this would be the founder and leader of a nation, you would assume it would be Esau and not Jacob. But Jacob steals the blessing that Isaac actually intends to give Esau, and naturally his brother hates him, and so thinking that his father is about to die and he will no longer have the protection that comes with a living father, Jacob flees from his father's house and runs away to live with his uncle Laban. And as he flees his father's house, he has a vision And God gives him the promise that he gave to both Abraham and Isaac and confirms that, yes, he is the one who inherits this promise. He is the one who will carry on his father's line. You can read that in chapter 28, verses 13 through 15. So flip over with me to chapter 28, verses 13 through 15, describe how God makes this commitment to Jacob. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Notice at this point in his life, Jacob does not feel particularly blessed. Jacob feels homeless and hunted. But it's here that God gives to him the promise that he gave to his father and to Abraham. And here, God says that he will be blessed and inherit land, and yet in his immediate future, he goes and becomes an indentured servant to his uncle. For 20 years, he doesn't own anything. No land, no property, nothing. Does indentured slavery seem like God's promise is coming true? As as Jacob gets ready to leave, realizing that he lacks really independence and freedom and is somewhat fearful, he tries to sneak away from his uncle Laban with his family, with the flocks and herds that he's worked for to be his own. And the only reason that his uncle leaves him alone is that God appears to him in a dream and says, Laban, don't touch Jacob. Let him go. And in a little way, this is a preview of Exodus. You can imagine the hope that this story would give to people in bondage in Egypt. Even their father Jacob was a slave. Even Jacob had to rely on God to deliver him. While living with his uncle, Jacob had tried to marry the woman that he loved, but his uncle, ironically, tricks him the same way that he had tricked other people, and he ends up marrying two women. This is not something that the Bible says is a good thing. This is the foundation of chaos and division in Jacob's home. But God does bless Jacob. In spite of the conflict within his home and in spite of the conflict that he experiences throughout Canaan, God repeats his promise to him and he makes it clear that his family is the family that will grow. That not one of his children, but all of his children will inherit this blessing. Abraham had one son who inherited the promise. Not exactly a population boom. Isaac had one son who inherited the promise. But Jacob ends up with a family of 70 people who are blessed by God. But that family is not a portrait of godly fellowship. The tension that existed because he loved one wife and didn't exactly love the other resulted in his own sons hating each other. And Joseph, the son of the wife he loved, was hated so much by his brothers that they sold him into slavery and he went down to Egypt, not willingly, but in bondage. But Genesis 39 verse 2 says this, In the midst of slavery, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man as he was in the house of his Egyptian master. But just as success is is going well and he is placed in a position of authority and leadership and even of wealth, he's falsely accused of raping his master's wife. And so everything he has is lost and he's put in prison. Genesis 39.21 says this, after he's falsely accused, says, The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now, this is not exactly what you would call steadfast love. He has been falsely accused and left to rot in a prison. And not only that, God leaves him there for two years. Nevertheless, it says that God was with him. And showed him steadfast love. Sometimes God's steadfast love hurts. Sometimes God's steadfast love is not what you would want. And not what you would plan. But it's what God in his kindness has planned for you. God has allowed Joseph to interpret dreams. And he does so for two prisoners One of whom ends up serving Pharaoh in Pharaoh's court. And God in his providence gives Pharaoh two nightmares. And no one can interpret them. And so the man in Pharaoh's court remembers Joseph and sends for him. And Joseph is brought to interpret these dreams. And Joseph tells Pharaoh his dreams mean that there will be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. And so he tells Pharaoh to prepare for the famine by storing food during the prosperous years. And Pharaoh, sensing that this man knows Almighty God and has great wisdom, sets him over the entire kingdom. The famine is severe and it afflicts not only Egypt, but also Canaan, where Joseph's family lives. And it says, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain. Don't miss that. All the earth is blessed through Joseph. So you begin to see hints that God's promise is working itself out in spite of everything that's happened, in spite of false accusations, in spite of infighting. God's promise is remaining true. But there's more. This is where what God says to Abraham know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is where this begins to come true. Joseph's brothers come to him to buy grain because the famine is severe in Canaan. And he ends up bringing the whole family to live in Egypt so that their family is provided for and prospers. And this is how in the the beginning of Exodus, this is why, all of Joseph's family and the children of Israel are together in bondage in Egypt because God in his kindness ordained that they would go to Egypt to be rescued from this famine. Now, I want to point out two things before we close and, and observe communion together as a church. Much of the story that we have skipped over in these chapters is Ugly. If you've never read the book of Genesis before, I would encourage you to read it. It's a difficult and a painful read. After all of Joseph's family comes to Egypt to escape the famine, Jacob, his dad, comes to talk to Pharaoh in chapter 47. And he's in a position of being an old, wise man. And so Pharaoh is actually asking him for wisdom and asking him for what his life has been like. And Jacob says to Pharaoh, this is in verse 9 of chapter 47, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Few and evil is how Jacob, as an old man, describes the years of his life. He's not exaggerating. If you read through Genesis, you read stories of sexual abuse, of rape. You read genocide and terrible violence. Jacob is constantly afraid for himself. Even after he leaves Laban and sees that God has rescued him, he is afraid of his brother Esau. Even after God spares him and delivers him from his brother Esau, he is afraid of the Canaanites that live in the land with him. His children fight each other to the point where he thinks that his sons murdered Joseph. Not only that, his daughters are victims of sexual assault. His children are a mess. And at the end of his life, looking back on it, what he says is, few and evil have been the days of my sojourn. But I want to point out one more thing. That is true. But, notice what Joseph says in describing what God has done through these evil days. Joseph says, at the end of the book, to his brothers, who sold him into slavery, who left him for dead... His brothers have come to him and they've expressed fear that he will exact vengeance on them for what they did to him in selling him into slavery. He is the ruler of Egypt. He has all the authority and power necessary to kill them and their kids. And they know it. And in spite of the fact that they've seen him exercise forgiveness, they still live in a place of fear. And Joseph says this to them. And this is, I think, the critical verse that I hope that we take away from from today. That in spite of all that transpires in Genesis, in spite of the reality that God's promise works out in ways that we would not expect, that we would not ask for, Joseph says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, As they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Every aspect of Genesis shows that God is faithful to his promise. Both the times of obvious blessing and the times of incredible pain where you would wonder, how is it that God is keeping his promise true? And the critical question for us to ask, if you have ever trusted the promise of God and you experience real evil, if you experienced heartache, and we've talked some about it already today. Virgil's son-in-law was 55 when he had a heart attack and died. He has a wife and a daughter that survive him. Hurricane Harvey has already killed over 30 people, and God only knows what the future holds with North Korea. As you look at the reality of evil in our lives and around the world, the promise of God can often seem pale in comparison. The question is, is he keeping his promise even when it looks like it's failing? And let me urge you to ask that question as you think about the cross of Jesus Christ. We are about to remember what Jesus has done for us in communion as a church let me urge you to use your imagination for a moment and imagine that you're a follower of Jesus in the first century. You're someone who's looking for the Messiah and you have heard Him preach and teach with authority. You've heard the Sermon on the Mount. You've seen Him heal the sick. You've seen Him raise the dead. You believe He is the Messiah. And then He is arrested and crucified. Did God keep his promises when the Messiah himself died? The answer is yes. It is a resounding yes. That God not only works in spite of evil, but works through it. The reality is that the death of the Savior accomplished the salvation of all of God's people. God worked through the greatest evil as His innocent Son bore the punishment for all our sins. You get a foretaste of that in Genesis. Joseph is an innocent man. Suffers so that his family and the whole world could be saved from a famine. Jesus is the innocent God-man who suffers on our behalf so that the promise of God becomes true in Christ. I open the service with the verse from 2 Corinthians that said, all of God's promises are yes in Christ. The critical question is, are you and I in Christ? If you have come here today hurt, or if you've come questioning God's goodness or doubting him, let me urge you to look to the scriptures. Genesis is not a book that says God blesses good people. Who are already strong. Genesis is a book that says God blesses people who are weak, that could never succeed on their own. God blesses those who trust in His promises. And as I close my message today, I want to read you from Romans chapter 8 about exactly how God does that through Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? Is God for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice, this is how God works his will and way for his people. And Paul says... Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise You for Your faithfulness. We ask that You would help us to rest in Your promise. Not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave Himself for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.